0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the Silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's aaasorg slash join.
1: Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 11th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm chats with Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories. And then Seth Bordenstein discusses how our genes interact with our microbiome to influence our health. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society.
0: Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the mystery of Basque heritage. The language of Spain's Basque region has long been considered unique in Europe, but no one is quite sure how it got to be so unique. Dave, what do we know about this language before the study?
2: Well, we know that about 700,000 people speak it. These people mostly live on the Atlantic coastal border between Spain and France. We also know this is a very unusual language. In fact, people who study language say that it's not related to any other language spoken on Earth.
0: The researchers in this new study decided to look at genetics to see if they could detect the timing of this isolation, when the Basque language arose, and who brought it there, and who spoke it a long time ago. Where did they get the genes to look into this?
2: They found some individuals, some long-deceased individuals, in a cave in northern Spain. And these individuals were farmers. They were farmers that lived around maybe 5,500 to 3,500 years ago. Now, what's interesting here and what's one of the interesting speculations about the Basque language is some researchers have said because it's so unusual that it's probably descended from a hunter-gatherer language. Hunter-gatherers lived in Europe before farmers moved in. And the idea would be that the Basque people derived from these hunter-gatherers that maybe there was this isolated population that wasn't overtaken by farmers, that maybe they eventually became farmers, and therefore that's why they have this very unusual language. There's also some other unusual features about the Basque. They have some unusual genetic signatures that seem to differentiate them from other Europeans. All this is to say that's one of the reasons researchers were excited to see find these individuals in this cave, which is actually in the heart of Basque country. And these individuals are farmers. So The idea is, well, if there's a high relationship between these farmers and modern Basque, that means that they were probably farmers and not hunter-gatherers.
0: So when they compared this ancient Basque DNA with modern Basque DNA and ancient European genomes and modern European genomes, what did they see?
2: Well, they found that actually there was a lot of similarity between these ancient farmers and the Basque people, which sort of discounts this hypothesis that the Basque can trace their lineage a lot farther back to hunter-gatherers. But it still does suggest that the Basque were very isolated. And the the current hypothesis, based on this data, could be that the Basque, even though they were farmers, they were a very isolated group of farmers that really didn't have a lot of contact with other European farmers that may have helped them develop their own genetic signature and maybe hold on to a language that may have been a very early European language that didn't get mixed in with other uh, European languages. And that could explain why it's so different from the other languages in the area.
0: Next up, we have a story on the benefits of living in a barn. I grew up on a non-working farm. We had the equipment, even some of the animals, but we produced little to nothing from it. We definitely had the dust and dung that comes with farming. And I feel particularly lucky because early exposure may have saved me from asthma. Dave, this hypothesis about farm living and asthma has been around for a while. What's made researchers make a link between the benefit of being raised in or near a barn and uh, not having asthma.
2: (laughs) This all has to do with something called the hygiene hypothesis, first of all, which is this idea that early exposure to, for lack of a better word, a dirty environment somehow helps our immune system. It sort of tells our immune system, look, there's a lot of things in the environment don't get overreactive about any of them. And that's one of the problems we see in these types of conditions, in these autoimmune conditions. What the specific link with the farm living is, is that researchers have already seen this correlation between kids that grow up on farms and not having asthma, especially when they compare them to kids that grow up in the cities. So this led to this question about, well, what is it specifically about the farm that may be protective
0: In this study, they were looking for that mechanism, how farm dust may or may not help the immune system not be overreactive. What did they look at specifically from the farm?
2: They wanted to figure out what it is in the dust itself, and they looked at something called endotoxins, which are these molecules from the cell wall of bacteria. And what happens is when bacteria break down, the bacteria we're talking about is coming largely from cow manure and fodder. And when it breaks down, you get a lot of these endotoxins breaking off and getting into the air. And there was a suspicion that maybe this endotoxin is what kids are breathing in that's helping protect them against conditions like asthma.
0: And when they took the endotoxin to the lab and exposed mice to it, what did they see?
2: What they found was that when they exposed mice to it, the endotoxins were indeed protective. That mice that inhaled this every other day for two weeks had a much lower risk of developing asthma in response to dust mites, which can cause asthma in mice, versus mice that were not exposed to these endotoxins.
0: And at this point, they narrowed down one of the enzymes that may be responsible for this effect to A20. That's the name of the enzyme. And it seems to be able to connect the materials going into the lungs and the immune response. Were they able to see this enzyme at work in people as well?
2: Yeah, the team looked at bronchial cells, the cells sort of lining our airways from people, and what they found was that when these people were exposed to the endotoxins, they had a lower inflammatory response, sort of like what we've seen in the mice. And If you have a very high inflammatory response, that's when you're going to get conditions like asthma.
0: Is the next step here then to try to boost this enzyme in people or maybe just give them some farm dust early on?
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Obviously, they probably want to find a more sort of druggable thing than farm dust. But you have to be careful here because actually when you're playing around with exposure, especially when you're talking about young kids, you can actually cause conditions like asthma as well. You really have to fine-tune the exposure level. The other issue is that researchers aren't 100% sure that it's actually the farm dust which is giving farm kids this protective effect. You know, people that live on farms, that are raised on farms, do a lot of other things differently as well. They're drinking unprocessed cow milk, for example. Their lifestyle can be very different. And these all may play a factor in developing uh, conditions like asthma as well.
0: Lastly, we have a story on flying ants that lost their wings. We've talked about this big question in science on the podcast before. Will evolution happen the same way? every time. That is, if we're able to rewind things and start over with the same conditions, would people have ten toes and bats have two wings? Well researchers working with Arizona ants have been able to do something like this. Dave, how did they set up this evolutionary experiment? Yeah
2: well this experiment was sort of set up for them. This this experiment has to do with ants that have lived in Arizona for thousands of years. But what's interesting about Arizona is it's actually changed a lot in the last 10,000 years. 10,000 years ago, Arizona's lower elevations, which were all deserts today, were very verdant areas. They were covered in wildflowers and forests. And rising above all of this were these so-called sky islands. These were these 2,400-meter-tall mountains that hosted a lot of unique wildlife. And what happened was 10,000 years ago, you ha- basically had this one ant species that lived in the area, and the queen ants had wings, and what they would do is they would fly from maybe their mountaintops to down in the valley and just sort of repopulate and things like that. What happened is as Arizona became drier, all of this verdant area in the low-lying area dried up and became desert, and so these ants got stuck on these five different sky islands. And all of a sudden, whereas before they could kind of intermingle, they couldn't do that anymore because if they got into the desert, they would die.
0: This does seem like the ideal situation for studying evolution over time. You have five populations isolated, but with the same starting point. And they chose to focus on wing loss because all the populations of the queens lost their wings. How did they study this? Well,
2: that was one of the first interesting things that they observed was that even though all these ants used to belong to the same species, now you've got five isolated populations and the queens and all of them have adapted the exact same way to this changing environment. And that being that they all lost their wings. And the reason these ants would lose their wings is because they don't really need them anymore. And in fact they could be a detriment. They're not flying around anymore because if they fly too far off their sky island, Again, they're going to get stuck in the desert, which isn't good. But even if they don't want to fly around, if they've got wings, the wind can have an easier time blowing them around, and that could be very detrimental. So there was an advantage for each of these populations for these queens to lose their wings. And what they found was even though all these five populations lived on different islands, sky islands, they were all basically subject to the same evolutionary pressure. You've got to lose your wings. Uh, you're living in similar types of environments. And what they saw on the genetic level was, you know, they were taking different paths to do this, but, you know, the end result was the same. They all lost their wings, which suggests, at least in this case, that even if you rewound the clock on evolution, you're still going to get the same result, that it's not very random, at least in this in this particular case.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about the world's oldest oatmeal, possibly. <laughs> also why there might be neutrinos in your toothpaste. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about polio resurfacing in Mali and the Ukraine. Also a story about falsified data in a grizzly bear study and how that's led to a paper retraction. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org.
1: Just 10% of the cells in your body are actually you. The other 90% are made up of bacteria and other microbes. The human microbiome has gotten a lot of press lately, as new studies come out about links between our microbes and our health. The type of microorganisms we end up with and how they affect our health is a result of interactions between the products of our genes and the genes of the organisms making up our microbiome, as well as our environment. Seth Bordenstein discusses a new way of looking at heredity of the human microbiome using community ecology as a model. In this week's issue of Science, I'm Suzanne Bard. Can you define the human microbiome for our listeners?
3: The human microbiome is the entire community of microbes that live in and on us, potentially hundreds to thousands of species of microorganisms. And across our body sites, whether it's our faces, our guts, our mouths, belly buttons, etc., we have microbiome fingerprints that reflect this body site variation. And these assemblages of microbes in their diversity are largely harmless and in some cases actually benefit us.
1: You say that they sometimes benefit us. What are some examples?
3: The microbiome field in its current form is about 10 years old and growing exponentially in terms of diversity of its discoveries. So we're still finding out new benefits in these early days, essentially every month. It's widely appreciated that our resident microbiomes assist digestion of foods such as complex plant carbohydrates that are difficult to break down and the microbiome can act as an extended immune system to combat pathogens or even train our immune system to work properly. So these would be two examples of a nutritional and a defensive role in our biology. Our gut microbes also digest pharmaceutical products such as Tylenol to make them work and not be toxic. And for some people, skin microbiomes can actually repel mosquitoes. And probably the greatest benefit right now in the medical field is that microbiome transplants from healthy individuals to recipients can cure severe and sometimes lethal gut infections such as Clostridium difficile.
1: Interesting, and I didn't know that about Tylenol. Is that true for a lot of drugs?
3: It appears that it's an area that we need to delve much deeper into because the gut microbes have enzymes that help break down these products. And having the right sort of set of microbes to break them down can determine whether the pharmaceutical products are toxic to you versus not.
1: Let's talk about where the microbiome comes from. Are we born with our microbiome? Does the microbiome change over the course of our lifetime?
3: Right. So we're born with our mother's microbiome for the most part. And while there's some discussion about whether the earliest microbiome is seeded internally in the womb, it is clear that once we're born, our microbiomes or infants microbiomes are obtained from our mothers externally via birth, breastfeeding, and skin contact. Delivery route differences such as a vaginal birth versus C-sections can also affect the abundance and types of microbes that initially colonize us. And then following these early life events, studies show that the microbiome diversifies rapidly, essentially in our first few years of life, and eventually it stabilizes at around year three. And as adults, there are studies that show that many of our gut microbes can in fact stay with us for years reflecting that stability.
1: So what does it mean for microbiome to be heritable?
3: Yeah. So here it's helpful to clarify what heritable is and how it's different from inheritance because there's a big difference. Inheritance is the way parents may provide microbes to their offspring, whereas heritability, although it sounds similar, refers to the effects of our genes in our own cells and how they have an effect on the colonization of the microbiome. So heritability is actually a genetic value, and it can range from zero to one in the modeling, and it tells us essentially the relative contribution of our genes versus the environment on the microbiome assembly. So a higher heritability means that our genes versus the environment strongly affect the makeup of our microbial communities. And for decades, this heritability measurement has been used to assess the genetic contributions to traits such as our height or weight or eye color, but now biologists are making groundbreaking discoveries on the heritability of specific members of the microbiome to determine how extensively our genes interact with microbes to potentially isolate the functionally important microbes and make predictable interactions with us. So microbiome heritability has been measured independently for each different microbe of the microbiome, essentially going down the list of microbes that live in us and determining whether our human genetic variation affects the abundance of those particular microbes in or on our bodies.
1: How interesting. In your paper, you propose a different way of looking at microbiome heritability by measuring community
3: heritability.
1: Tell me about that.
3: Interestingly, ecologists developed this community heritability in the same year that the current microbiome revolution took off, about 10 years ago. And the two fields have largely developed independently. Community heritability is the degree to which genetic variation in one species, let's say our species, affects the community assembly of multiple species or microbes altogether. And there are really two ways that this community view can be useful. First, the community heritability measurement is a formal model to extract how our genomes affect the composition of our microbiomes in a complex manner. And the second utility is that it's a formal measurement of how entire communities of different species, microbes in this case, but it could be other communities as well, are affected by the genetics of a single foundational species. And in this case, how human genetics affects the assembly of the microbial community rather than individual microbial members.
1: Do you have some examples of how community heritability might have an impact on someone's health?
3: Yeah, so community heritability can tell us the degree of influence of our genes on our microbial communities. And moreover, many studies have demonstrated that the structure of our microbial communities, who's there and how abundant are those microbes, can predict who is obese versus lean or who has a pathogenic infection such as Clostridium difficile versus not. So we can triangle these observations and imagine that for some health conditions, not necessarily these ones, our host genes may affect the microbial community structure that in turn may affect our health state. So it's all about the context of who's there in the microbiome and potentially how our genes affect who's there, which is what heritability essentially sniffs out.
1: Interesting. Where do you see this concept of community heritability going in the future?
3: community heritability has been elegantly used by ecologists interested in genetics and evolutionary processes. For instance, how a poplar or cottonwood tree structure its communities of arthropods or fungi or bacteria. But this community heritability has not reached its fullest potential yet because the study of human and other animal microbiomes continues at a fast pace and measurements of microbiome heritability will become more routine. So coupling community heritability models of the microbiome with standard heritability measurements of single microbes in the microbiome is potentially an important frontier as we appreciate how ecological and evolutionary processes in the visible world from plants, let's say, apply directly to the invisible world of us and our microbes. The products of our genes work in association with the products of genes from the microbes in the microbiome, and so a crucial effort and outcome of studying this complexity in these gene networks is to determine the predictable interactions, if there are any, between our genomes and the vast microbial communities that colonize us. So this is what community heritability modeling and measurements and thinking is all about, in addition to standard heritability measurements. And generally, I think it'll help answer whether we can provide compelling evidence for linking host genetic variation to community and ecosystem processes that have implications for understanding our own health, perhaps evolutionary processes, and ultimately fusing various fields of biology, such as genetics, ecology, and evolution.
1: Thanks for speaking with me, Seth.
3: And thank you for the opportunity.
1: Seth Bordenstein and his colleague Edward von Opstall write about heritability of the human microbiome This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.